she popped one. The lights might do a little dance tonight. Hello, this is Bart Campolo, and welcome to the wonderful podcast. Um, I, I am Bart Campolo, and that means I'm the only person that's always here in these podcasts. But the person who isn't always here, that's here today, is my friend Peter Rollins. And, and, and Pete, you know, as we we're getting this thing started, I'm like, how do I introduce you? Like, what title do I give to you? Oh, uh, Philosopher King. Philosopher King. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm always unsure what titles people should use. And when you hear an introduction of yourself, if someone reads the kind of various books you've written or things you've done, you often feel like, who is that person they're describing? It's definitely not me. I'm the guy who lies in bed every morning and doesn't want to get up. And uh, yeah, so I don't know, just the guy who's from Ireland and currently living in LA. Yeah, well, yeah, I could start the whole thing over and go like, Hello and welcome to the wonderful podcast. I'm here with Peter Rollins, the guy who doesn't want to get up in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. So, so, but I mean, at this stage in your life, I mean, I've known you for years. And yeah. when I first met you, we were, you were in Belfast and we, I was in Belfast and you were running this, this entity, this kind of expression of artistic creativity and spiritual wildness called Icon. Yeah. And that was how many years ago? Did, what was the lifespan of Icon? Oh, wow. I mean, as you get older, time starts to <laughs> all congeal. But it ran for about 11 or 12 years. Um, I think it started in kind of the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of ran from the late 90s into kind of the mid, uh, uh, in two, around 2005, maybe, maybe even later than that. And then, and then at some point, you transitioned from living in Ireland to, 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 and visiting the United States quite a bit to actually sort of being based in the United States. When did you sort of make that, make that jump across the ocean? Yeah, so I've been in the U.S. for five years now. And I, I never intended to do it. It wasn't my desire. Or, or I was very happy in Belfast. But actually a, a foundation that was interested in my work uh, offered to bring me to America and basically be a patron for three years and kind of finance my work to allow me to kind of explore it in an American context. Um, at first, I kind of said no, and I, I, I stayed in Belfast, but uh, eventually it just made sense um, to come over and give it a try, and I've stayed here ever since. Yeah, and right now, I mean, now you're, you're out here on the West Coast with me, mm-hmm. um, living in, what, Redondo Beach? Is that where you're based? Yeah, at the moment, yeah. And, are, and, and you're, I mean, when, when people say finance your work or your work is ongoing, like, it's kind of like your work is in your head, isn't it? I mean, you're writing. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, it's crazy. I don't think I've ever worked a day in my life. I, I've, I, I've always hated the idea of a nine to five. And, and what I love is, is thinking and uh, writing and also and community development, you know. So those are the things that I've been doing. But it's very hard to get funded or to make money doing that. But I've been very lucky uh, in, in, in being able to make a living from basically thinking and writing. Yeah, I mean, it was funny, like, before we, before we started podcasting, we were talking about, like, the, the, the idea that, you know, I'm here at UFC being the, you know, the secular chaplain and working with all these students, and it's not hard to find ways to build community and to, you know, hopefully pump good meaning into people's lives. But, you know, paying, you know, paying the bills in that endeavor, you know, is anybody's guess how long I last here. And, and that's the thing we chatted about, which was, 
you don't do this because you want to. You do it because you need to. I mean, I, I'm, I'm amazing that I'm living here on the West Coast and I'm able to survive doing what I love. But actually, I spent uh, six years in unemployment benefit in Belfast. I lived in a squad for a while. I, I bankrupt back at home, you know. I mean, it, was, it was, wasn't easy, but it didn't matter at all. I was doing what I was passionate about. And actually, if anything, the success that I had when I kind of got my, my patronage, uh, that was difficult. That was a profound crisis in my life because uh, now I was being financed and I was worried that it might actually make me a little bit a little bit lazy around the edges so um, yeah you do this stuff not because you want to you do it because you have to and that's what that's my, always my advice to writers people who want to write if you want to write find something else to do <laughs> if you need to write then you're cursed and good luck hey, now when you when you got that patronage thing I mean you know I mean part of my journey through faith and into kind of this sort of secular religion I'm pumping these days was that I found that as long as I was making my living or as long as I was being supported by evangelical Christian supporters, Mm -hmm. it wasn't so much that I consciously tried to appease them or please them. It was this sort of subtle... I, I, I didn't notice that experience until it was over, until all of a sudden I didn't need to raise money, and then my mind went places I never thought it would go. Very true. I mean, I, I have um, often said, you know, be careful who pays you, because you can't bite back the hand of feet. And even if you think consciously you can, at an a unconscious level, there are all of these pressures that, that, that push against you doing that. And actually, I, I turned down the patronage three times. Um, you know, I kept on, it, it was offered to me, and I turned it down, it was offered again. And the reason why I turned it down was because I feel there's always strings attached. But the wonderful thing about this, and it was a couple of years ago now, but they convinced me that they said, listen, there's no strings attached. And finally what convinced me was when they said, consider a back pay for the work that you've done. You can do anything or nothing. You can go wherever you want. The only thing that we're interested in is creative ideas. So try to be creative. Did, did I mean, you know, I mean, it's funny because if I were them, the one other thing I would have said to you is, and we're going to give it to you for three years, and then we'll never give you another dime. Yeah. So that you would have no, you would be like a like a politician who, who's you know lame duck that you would have no reason to to do anything that you know that you would think would be pleasing to them because it wouldn't matter. And that's what they did. That's funny you say that. That was the arrangement. I mean, the, the guy who was behind it is an incredibly smart, brilliant man. He's a personal friend of mine as well. Now through this, but he was incredibly smart and he said he said this is three years and then it's done you know no matter how much i like you no matter how much we're friends it's done i i will i think you can support yourself but if you can't then three years that's it you, you go and you find a job in walmart oh, good for him yeah. all right all right so so now i've got this patron who sort of believes in in you and i've got you saying I do this not because I want to, but because I have. There, there's this thing I have to express. There's this stuff I have to write. So, what is the like at this stage in the game? You know, what's the core of it? Like, what do you, what do you, what do you need to express? What is it that you're trying to say? Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, I think as human beings, we are we are all haunted. You know, we all have ghosts. We all have um, people we've hurt and people who've hurt us and we all have people we've loved and lost. And 
the, the tendency we have is to conspire with religion and with secular culture to try to avoid confronting these ghosts, to try to find something that will bring wholeness and happiness and fulfillment to us and, and ultimately will mean that we don't have to kind of look at those those traumas and those those pains. And my work is partly about saying that those ghosts uh, become poltergeists when we don't look at them. When we push them down, we try to avoid them, and they come out in different ways. So you might find yourself bursting into tears at a stupid advert, or a fits of rage against your partner that come from nowhere. Or you might find yourself working too hard or, or giving yourself to too much daytime TV, whatever it is. So the unpleasant truths that you can't speak find unpleasant ways to speak. They come out in what's called a symptom. And a lot of my work, it was initially and still is, about showing how we conspire with religion and secular culture you know, through religion, through believing in God or believing that money will make us happy or believing that new technologies will make us fulfilled. And, and actually saying, no, we have, to, we have to bring the ghosts up. We have to look at the, the lack and the suffering in our lives. And when we do, those things become holy ghosts. We actually learn to live in a more whole and a, a healthy kind of way. So, I mean, what's interesting is, like, I, I, I feel like I, I want to jump to the end and then work back because you say, like, we have to bring the ghosts up and confront them. And my, my, the, the question that just leapt into my mind is, in order to get where? Like, you know, in, in some sense, you know, you say, like, we won't be happy if we don't do this or we won't. So if, if I was going to say, like, what, what to you is the destination that you say, like, this is where I'm trying to get or this is where I think people should be trying to get like what is meaning or happiness or what's the end goal here yeah uh, interestingly in psychoanalysis of course when someone goes to therapy they ask the same question you're asking just like what can I expect from this can I get rid of my suffering can I live better can I stop pushing people away who I love you know, can I actually uh, not keep sabotaging the, the, the relationships and the work that I have and the therapist is, is uh, put in a place where they're demanded to say yes I can make things better, happy, or whatever. But actually, in psychoanalysis, the only thing you can promise is a conversation with your unconscious, that you will encounter parts of yourself that you maybe have ignored or repressed. Now, in other words, it's not about healing. Healing is the after effect. And I would say it like this. You don't play football to get fit. But fitness is something that results from playing football, hopefully for most people. In the same way, I don't want to say that if you bring up the ghosts and you, you tarry with these traumas that you've had, that your life will necessarily get better. I, I don't want to promise that. But in the same way that playing football will probably make you physically healthier, bringing those things up will probably make you a more empathetic, healthy, and uh, compassionate individual. Okay. And... and- What's interesting is like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you didn't answer my question because, and, and what I mean by that is that that you're right. The person shows up at the psychiatrist and says, "How can I stop sabotaging myself? How can I stop? You know, can you make the pain go away? All these things, all these negative things that I want to remove from my life." Mm-hmm. And you know, you say like, "Hey, 
I'm not promising you that. You know, what I'm promising you is, is that if you have an authentic encounter here, if, 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 if the process works, you'll face even reality. And some of reality is going to be, might be very painful. Your reality might be more painful than mine, yeah. um, depending on, on your circumstances. Um, I guess what I'm asking is, okay, after I've faced reality mm. and I see things as they are, still the question is, the reason I wanted to get rid of the pain yeah. or the reason, like, the reason I wanted to stop sabotaging my relationships or my life is because, you know, I, we, when we sabotage a mission – we keep it from reaching its end. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm asking is, is if the mission isn't sabotaged, yeah. where are we going? Yeah. And the reason why I'm, you know, avoiding answering the question is because I think that the problem is that too many of us give the answer to that. Uh, in psychoanalysis, it's, it can be called a university discourse or the master discourse sometimes. But it's that it's people want to know, you know, what will this look like? And if I dictate what I think that will look like, uh, then if they like me, they'll try to live up to that. Uh, Even if actually it's not exactly what they would enjoy doing. And if they don't like me, they might rebel against it. And what I kind of want to say to people is, I don't want to tell you what the end goal is for you. All I want to do is help you face your doubts, complexity and ambiguity, face your traumas, bring that stuff to the surface, um, and then you have to decide what, what that new life looks like. You know, I can't help you with that. Except as a friend, but not professionally. Professionally, I can't help you with that. But, I mean, as a writer, as, as, a, as a guy who gives talks, I mean, ultimately, you know, I, I preached a lot of sermons as a Christian. I give a lot of talks now. And you're right. People do say, can you help me figure out what will make, my, what will make me happy? Or, you know, and, and, and I said, you know, I mean, you, you know me well enough to know I have no qualms about saying, oh, you know, like ultimately there are many different ways to be a good person. There are many different ways to be happy, but I'm not I'm not sure being happy is, you know, and living a life in which you feel like you matter to other people and you're doing meaningful work in the world. Like, I think that's a I think that's almost a you. I would say that is a universal desire. But you see, the problem is there's a whole pile of stuff behind it. If someone asks you, like you and Bart and Polo, you know, what can I do? What should I do? There's a whole pile of stuff that already lies behind that. So first of all, they already respect you because they're asking you. So they already know a little bit about you. So already you can tell the type of person they are. Like, you know, they, if they're not asking John Piper, they're asking Bart and Polo, right? That tells you an awful lot. So Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, he would say to his students, he would say, you know, tell me what I should do, like this political cause or whatever. And Sartre would say, well, you're asking me, so you have, you have assumptions about who I am, so you already know the answer you want to hear, but why would I play into that and be the master of your own superego? You know, so... You know, the very fact that I ask you for advice and not, say, my other friend um, already shows that I, deep, unconsciously, not consciously, but unconsciously, I'm looking for certain advice. My, my questions about that is generally, why are you asking me? You know, what, what, what would it give you for me to, to tell you something? You know, and because are you treating me as a father figure? Are you reenacting your childhood desire for someone else to take responsibility for your life? You know, yeah, even if questions. I don't ask, even if I don't ask you, or nobody asks me, 
just the, the fact that a person sits down and says, in their own heart, in their own mind, they get up in the morning. I know that's hard for you, but they get up in the morning and they they set they off on it. But they never do. There's always your mother and father inside you. There's always, I mean, I know you're, and you're smiling. There's like, oh, all right. But actually, there's never. No, no, I'm not smiling. I mean, but, but there's, there's, there's no, if I sit down and try to work out like, what does it mean to be good? I, I know someone, for example, who was studying law, but she wanted also to be an artist. And she actually didn't enjoy studying law, but she did it. And it was weird. Whenever I heard her talk about studying law, it was almost like I could hear her father speaking. You know, it was like, it was a weird thing of going like, it was almost like not her desire. It was the desire of, of, of what she expected her father to desire uh, for her. I mean, yeah, I'm at the University of Southern California. I mean, there's every, almost every student I meet with, Yeah, they can tell me how, I, I say, what do you want to do? And they say, I want to succeed. Mm. And I'm thinking, but what, by what standard, by whose standard? And so often they are what my, my, the dean here calls excellent sheep. These are people that are jumping through hoops and they, they're competitive. They want to be better than everybody else at Absolutely. the game, but they have no idea why they're playing the game in the first place. Absolutely. And so, so my thinking, like in terms of my work as a kind of like a philosophical, theological therapist of sorts, is to, is to try to actually not play into that, but to, to try to bring it to the surface, to go, okay, let's look at even the way you desire. Let's look at the, you know, let's kind of pick that apart. Um, and, and so I'm there more to help them. Because I, I don't know what, what's best for them. They don't even know what's best for them. So how could I know? <laughs> See, but even the fact that you're saying, I'm here as a therapist, if you will, to, to help them get at the root of what they want, you are making a value judgment. You're saying, it would be better for them to do what they want than to do what other people tell them they should do. Yeah, although I, want to, although I just want to reject that because I don't think there is any authentic self that wants, you know, I think I mean, our wants are all constructed, I think, from our childhood. But my main interest is that often our wants and desires are conflictual. So we, we seemingly both want something, like we always go out with someone who hurts us, but we also don't want to do that. But it's really weird because we're always just attracted to people who hurt us. We're not attracted to people who are nice. They bore us. So they were attracted to somebody who hurts us. And it's like, why? You know, why, why am I? Because it's not simply that I can choose, oh, I'll just go out with the person who doesn't. It's like, no, my libidinal investment is in something. Um, and so what I... What, but well, I, mean, like, well, first of all, I mean, I just, I beg to differ in the sense of we don't all go after people that hurt us. Oh yes, no, that's an example, you know, an example that many of us know, like that's a, there's a, there's a therapies full of people who, who choose abusive partners, you know, it's like a, you know, that's just one example. But, 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 but what, what I would get, what I'm sort of interested in here is, is that there is this sense at which if somebody is trying to avoid pain, if they don't want to look at their ghosts, if they, if they don't want to face up to things, there's this way in which it sort of speaks to this kind of pleasure principle thing that says, I want to seek out pleasure. I want to avoid pain. Um, and, and what I always say is there are different strategies for doing that depending on who you are and how you're wired. But I think there is something very fundamental that says that our, our values mm-hmm. are by definition things that we want. Yes. Well, yeah, in ways I, that we want the world to be. But if you take that in its most extreme form, which I do, um, 
then what someone is doing, even if it looks like it's causing them suffering, is giving them some sort of unconscious pleasure. So in, in psychoanalysis, again, it's like I come in because I go, oh, I, I, do, I sabotage myself in this way. But actually in analysis, I discover that somehow that's replaying uh, how something early in my childhood and strangely, my libidinal interest is invested in that activity. So what, I mean, what's required people do, things, people do things against their own best interests all the time. I mean, people aren't rational. Yeah, but if you, well, I'm, I'm going by, like, if you said that you think people work with the pleasure principle, then what you're saying is, yeah, but you're right, but this is the Freudian insight. Freudian insight is What's funny is I'm not saying people do work with the pleasure principle. I'm saying they should work with the pleasure principle. Yeah. Well... That's, that's quite different from kind of moral philosophy. There's just this idea that human beings uh, go towards what's pleasurable and you know avoid what's not pleasurable. However, then psychoanalysis complicates that and says the death drive means that often we seem to do things that bring us displeasure, like the goth who listens to sad music in their house and doesn't leave. But then psychoanalysis says, well, in a strange way, there is there is a libidinal investment even in that activity. No, it's not. It's damaging. It's damaging. But but what one has to do is go. What is it that? Put it this way: not what is it that's pleasurable about that activity, but what suffering does it protect you against? Like the alcoholic, the alcoholism isn't the problem; it's the solution to a problem. So the alcoholism is, in a sense, what what does it cover over that's more terrible, or that the individual at an unconscious level thinks is more terrible? than, than the, the alcoholism itself. And if you get them to look at that, then the alcoholism can be addressed because it's the solution to a problem, not the problem. Mm. It's interesting. I was talking to a, a, a neuroscientist um, here, here at USC uh, a couple of days ago, and he was talking about how one of the most promising treatments that they've got for addiction right now is in the context of the therapeutic environment using psychedelic drugs. And the reason psychedelics work so well is because it, the, our sense of self, our sense of identity is, as you say, it's, it's kind of an illusion or it's, it's you know, it, it's, it's a construction at the very least. And he says what happens with psychedelic drugs is your certain walls come down, your sense of identity gets, um, gets fuzzy. And a lot of people report... I feel one with the world. I feel more connected with other people. I'm less afraid of dying because I feel like my life isn't the essential unit, but rather this whole thing that I'm a part of. And, and what happens is that when that happens to them, they go, wow, there are all these possibilities. Mm-hmm. And one of the possibilities is, is that I could not do this thing that I don't want to do but that I'm unable to control. And they go like, maybe I could control it. Lots of things are possible. I'm not as fixed. A, a, no, my identity, the me that can't stop using, is not as fixed an identity. I could be many me's. Yeah, yeah. And so, so when they talk about that psychedelic drug what there's, and the way in which it works with addiction, it's not about getting to the core of why you, you know, your death wish or why you, why you smoke. It's op- it's expanding your sense of possibility. Yeah, now, that, that could, I I believe that I mean the, the research and I, I'm interested in that scientific stuff, but I'm ultimately critical of it, and I'm critical of it for a very simple reason: it's apolitical. 
it's it's completely apolitical. Like, I mean, my crazy, ridiculous hypotheses is maybe in a society where there was less poverty, homelessness, mental illness, abusive relationships, then maybe there'd be less addiction. I still think there'd be some addiction because, of course, some of it's biological and whatever. But you can test my hypothesis empirically by looking at various countries in the world and looking at countries that have better, better... mental health facilities, uh, less de- difference between the rich and the poor, and less underemployment, less unemployment. And my hypothesis would be you'll probably get less um, alcoholics. And if that's true, then a lot of alcoholism is to do with people growing up and deeply problematic. I mean, I would imagine that there's more alcoholics on Skid Row than there are in uh, Beverly Hills. Now, in Beverly Hills, there are still alcoholics, absolutely. But I would would hazard to guess there's more. Sure. I mean, social pathologies are always going to emerge more where people's circumstances are dire. And, 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 you know, there's a lot of ways, you know, I spent most of my life living and working in places where the conditions were dire. And, yeah... All sorts of stuff goes on um, because people are trying to... So giving them psychedelic drugs is probably not going to be helpful, but getting them to politically combine to fight for better education for their children will probably be better. Right, and his thing with psychedelic drugs was he was saying, give me a a constituency that sort of looks the same. Like even, you know, very economically um, empowered individuals that are still addicted... Psych, that way of thinking, that way of opening the mind yes. um, changes things. And, and I guess, you know, I, I mean, it's funny, like, I guess what I'm trying, you, you know me well enough to know that in my Inger, Robert Ingersoll loving way, that I have no problem looking at another human being who's mired, who's staying at home, cutting themselves or crying every night to goth music Mm. and looking at that person and saying, I have a better life for you. I I have a vision for your life that I think will. So why do do psychoanalysts not use this technique? You should, you should go into the analytic analytic circle and go, you've been doing therapy all wrong. But the reason why psychoanalysis arose was because, by the way, I think psychoanalysis doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's like, it's, you get into lots of, of problems when you give advice to people that what's more effective is getting to the bottom of why they do the activity and, 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 and work and bearing witness to them and not giving a theodicy or, or, or a justification. But can, oh, can I say one thing? By the way, I love you, man. I love these conversations. We could probably talk all day. No one will listen, but we could talk. <laughs> I, my main interest is actually to take it away from the individual and make it societal. And this probably is, is effective to, to understand what I'm doing, which gets us away from neuropsychology and all of that, because you don't say that like a, a culture has like a, a, bio, a brain, you know. Um, homelessness, I would say, is not a problem. Homelessness is the solution to a problem. So uh, homelessness exists because our society has problems of mental health care, underemployment, unemployment, poverty, wealth divide, right? And so the result of that is the growth of the homeless population. If you treat homelessness as the problem, you, which is fine, but you try to help individual homeless people or whatever, but if you go to them and say, you are the good news for me, you expose the crisis within the community that I'm part of, then and you change the, the problem that's within the society, 
then the, 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 the solution, which is the homeless population, decreases. Right? It d- diminishes. It's like the priest who said, I take people out of the river and they call me a saint. I ask who throws them in the river and they call me a communist. Right? So, if it's structurally speaking, and if there's no neurobiology or anything like that, it's, it's going, think of homelessness, like not individuals, but if it's a real problem in a city, that is a, the solution to a problem, to a crisis that the society isn't addressing. If you're able to address that, then, then that will disappear. So it sounds like you have this big social justice agenda. Well, you know, I mean, I do in a sense that I'm, I'm concerned about uh, uh, some societal issues. Um, I'm concerned about kind of racism and sexism, and I'm, I'm worried about how religion um, offers kind of certainty and satisfaction promises. I'm, I'm worried how secularism um, is the new religion that offers wholeness and fullness um, in different ways, you know? So I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't, want, we wouldn't want to offer anybody wholeness and, and, and fullness. That would be... Yeah, absolutely, because when you do that, you make people more unhappy and more unfulfilled. If you say to someone, you'll be fulfilled if only you do yoga, have $10 million, or have hair, no offense to you, um, <laughs> or... or, or or, or worship my God, then either you do it and you realize, oh, it might make my life a bit better, but it didn't give me wholeness. Or you don't get it and you're always depressed. If only I could get that. Oh, and I see. And so the new path to wholeness and fullness is to not seek wholeness and fullness. But if I take that path, I am actually seeking wholeness and fullness again. Yeah, even even the pursuits of, of letting go of fullness and completeness can be its own defense mechanism. Absolutely. It's because it's not an intellectual thing. And that's the thing. Like, I'm, I'm not very interested in the ego and what people believe. I'm interested in, at a, at a deep level, just letting go of that pursuit and getting involved in real politics and, and real situations without wanting something that will make everything better in some absolute way. I don't know how you engage in anything real unless you have some kind of ideal that you're that you're that 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 informs that or that you're moving towards yeah there's two different types of ideas so there's the ideal of like say for example i think i have hope that you know in the next life i'll be you know everything will be wonderful right that's a hope that stops me from acting because i go like oh the next life everything's going to be great but there's the hope for example that your son will go to university and that hope actually requires that you do something about it. it. Requires you save money, you pick good schools, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm against the type of hope um, in something that's unrealistic, something that is kind of going to make everything good and better. Agreed. I'm, I'm Agreed. for the kind of the hope, the, the real grounded hope that actually you can just make life a bit better, and we can kind of learn to to be uh, you know to, to to be more healthy. But and that, and that to me like. I, I call it meaning and happiness or living a life that matters. You call it being healthy. But it, it's the same thing. I guess what I'm trying to push is like it's the same thing. It's putting something out there and but, saying, I want to help you move towards this. Yes. But what I'm saying is that despite what we think, most of us are caught up in this desire of something that makes soul complete. And at a very simple level, there's a test you can do with people who don't believe in God, right? Don't believe in God or demons or, or anything like that. If you get them to take a picture of someone they love and do as an ancient satanic ritual over that picture that, that curses that individual and brings badness to them. Most atheists, a lot of atheists won't do it. And then you ask them, but you don't believe in the devil or Satan or anything like that. You go, no. Or if you 
put people you don't believe in ghosts in a crypt of wait, a church wait, wait. Black, I, I would listen, 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 listen. You put them in a pit and they'll often believe, they'll be afraid of ghosts. Even if they don't believe in ghosts, they'll be afraid thinking there's things moving around them. The point I'm making is this, in psychoanalysis, the idea is we might say intellectually, I don't believe in some highest good, some being out there that will make me whole and complete. But actually, at a symbolic level, people act as if they believe in that. Right, because we're, I mean, we're evolved to be, like, super, we're evolved to have superstitions and supernaturalism. Yes. We're at war with ourselves. Our rational mind tells me this shouldn't bother me, but it does. Yes, no, but that's the point. The point of the communities that I set up is to actually, at that deep level, break us free from those ideas. So instead, like, we live in L.A. and L.A. is the most religious place I've ever been in. Everyone is promising wholeness, completeness, escape from our, our bodies. Soon we'll download ourselves in the digital form, take ayahuasca and be at one with the universe, do these yogic practices or these tantric sex moves and, and you will find kind of inner peace. It's, it's they're shamans and priests and prophets everywhere I turn. And the hilarious thing is they don't think they're religious. That's the hilarious. They, they have a spirituality or but but it's like you don't even hear that stuff in church anymore right but i mean what's funny is like here at usc the dean says bart i want you as the secular humanist chaplain to be in the office of religious life because for us religion is the pursuit of ultimate questions what what may what is the good life and how do we how do i live it how do i get there and Mm -hmm. so on that level yeah with those shamans you're talking about and people selling various products they're all promising a pathway to the good life. What's weird to me is I'm here at this university and people are like, work for the consulting firm, get into law school, make a lot of money, be successful. That's the path to happiness. But then I'll ask the student, you're getting on a train that's going to take you to success. At the other end of that train are the people there. Do they have the kind of relationships you want to have? Are they thinking the thoughts you want to think? Are they happy in the way that you want to be happy? Do they have meaning in the way that you want to be meaning, meaningful? And the students will say, like, I don't know. I've never asked that question. Yeah. And so what, I, what concerns me is not that people are selling happiness or pathways to meaning. It's that they're selling unexamined pathways to meaning that isn't really thought through at all. And so yes, that's, like, that's what everybody says. Like, so that's like the religious answer to this question is, well, yeah, all the other paths to happiness don't work, but ours one, our one does. But that's what the people who make BMWs say as well. Oh, the other paths don't work, but hey, having a good car does. That's, like that's like saying as a doctor, uh, everyone's telling you that the way to lose weight is to exercise and eat sensibly. Um, but other people are telling you that um, painting paintings is the way to lose weight, and other people are telling you that singing, um, you know, show yes. tunes is the way to lose weight. And, and 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 you say like, that's right. They're all everybody's lying. No, the guy who told you exercise and eating right, that isn't actually the way to lose weight. Yes, I think that's a good enough. the way. Yes, and, and I am making a claim as to what I think um, the good life looks like, and the claim is at a very simple level. AA is a better model, and AA is the most crap, um, like, small thing that's happening in basements of churches, and nobody really knows about it. It's full of broken people, and it's wonderful. And what is AA? It's a place where you admit your brokenness, like I'm an alcoholic, in a room of people who accept you for who you are, don't ask you to change, and say, yes, so am I. Now, once you've done that, 
Then they offer the 12 steps, which are these kind of ways to try to kind of transform your life. But they come after and always in the aftermath of simply being in a room where you are honest about your struggles in a community of grace that accepts you for who you are. Right, right, but that's crazy. But, but that's the but kind they're of thing. Sh- they're, they're shaming just like everybody else's. Somebody out there is saying yoga is the way. Somebody out there is saying something else. And they're saying this kind of authenticity is a tool, is a pathway to lead you towards a more fulfilled life, a better sense of connection with other people, a more meaningful experience of your one and only life. That, that is, I mean, I, I keep coming back to it, but I keep saying that anybody who directly offers you certainty and satisfaction is like the person who says football will make you fit. Now, it might you be just fit. told me AA was good. So, yeah, yeah, but here's the reason in the sense of it provides a space where you are honest about who you are. And I would say the, the uh, results of that is often, but not always, we grief. We all know those alcoholics who haven't has worked on, but it's hopefully a better and more healthy life. What I'm saying is anyone who directly says, I can give you the best life, is a liar, right? But in AA, you say, you just have to say, you go, just be in a community of grace where we will love one another, encounter one another, and then here's the secret. I think that if you do that, that will probably lead you to a health, happier, healthier life. But I'm not going to promise that. That's not a promise I make. It's absolutely a promise that you make. No, I don't, because I, because you know what? I've seen the communities that I think are healthiest still have people come out of them where it was damaging for them, destructive for them. Even the healthiest communities I've seen, I'm not making those promises. The only promise I make is you will have a conversation with yourself that will bring up things that you struggle with. I mean, this may be one of the. I feel like this is an abortion debate. We're like, we're gonna. Well, we're just gonna have to agree to disagree here, Peter. <laughs> no, I go like that. That AA experience. Yeah. When we, when, when you say that's more real or healthier or more authentic, and you're saying, like, but it doesn't work for everybody, and I go like, nothing works for everybody. Yeah. Nothing is a method that gets everybody to the goal of healthier, happier more fulfilled, a sense of mattering, a sense of, a sense of being at home in the world. But do you see, okay. But, 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 wait, 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 let me finish. Let me finish. Nothing works for everybody. And, and therefore, I'm, you know, one of the things that's been hardest for me leaving Christianity and coming into the secular space is that I have a knee-jerk reaction when I find something that works for me or works for other people to want to impose it on everybody because that for my, for me my religion was there is one way that is the right way for everyone and I I'm having to break myself of the of any sense of universal universal pathway. I don't I have a universalist. So different that way. I am a universalist. Like I, you know. But anyway, keep going. What's interesting is is I ha- I say I have a universal goal. But I can't prom- and, and I have some pathways that I'd like you to try that work for a lot of people, but I can't promise they'll work for you. You say, I've got a universal pathway. This is a way yeah. I want you to go. But I don't have a universal goal for you. And here's the thing. I don't mind using your language if, to one, but what I want to do is just clarify what I'm saying very simply and then use your language. I'm saying that there's, we, have a, we have a sense of lack, which we won't get into where that comes from. But psychoanalytically, there's a sense of loss that comes from being human subject, I would say. And there's two things. Either there are people who promise they can fill that gap, and there's those who say we have to learn to live with it. 
and I'm saying that we have to learn to live with it. Now, yes, so that's that's my argument, and I'm saying that that religion and secularism and various things are often saying you can fill that lack, and I'm saying that existentialism, psychoanalysis, certain forms of radical theology are about saying you have to just learn to live with and accept the lack. Yeah, that's I think what I'm saying. That's good, and I think I think that's great. And and you know what you know what I think the the subtext of that argument is is if you learn to live with that lack, that gap, it'll fill that gap. Oh, uh, no, but that's the thing. Like, here, I'll put it like this: debts, right? What is debt? If, I, if you owe me a hundred dollars, it's 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 a concretization of nothing. That there's a lack. There's a lack. Hundred. You owing me something means there's a lack. You know, you it's something that you owe. To forgive a debt doesn't mean to pay it. If I forgive your debt, it doesn't mean someone else has paid that debt. It means that I've taken that nothingness and I rendered it into nothing. I've said that's nothing, that debt is nothing. So to forgive a debt, like the year of Jubilee, is to say that debt, which is the concretization of nothingness, a lack, lacks, it's nothing, it's gone, right? I'm saying that a lot of religion and, and secularism tries to pay the debt, tries to fill the lack. And I'm saying that the lack has to be forgiven. The lack, has, and what that means is, you don't fill the lack; you just stop it from having a sting. You stop it from driving you. You realize that one of the beautiful things about life is we're not complete. That we desire, that we go on new adventures because because there's constant desire that can't be fulfilled, and we learn to love that. So it's very non-Buddhist. I'm not Buddhist, you know. All right. I, I, this is where I, I, have you ever listened to that NPR show on being with Krista Tippett? Uh, I'm not really. I've heard of it. Yeah. Oh, you know, what? It, it's it's a really good show because it's it's not a religious show per se. She interviews everybody from the Dalai Lama to Shane Claiborne. I've heard um, it, yeah. and, and so, you know, and, and, and she interviews secular people and she interviews neuroscientists, people, all these people. But it's always around meaning and, and life and purpose. And one of the great things about her is she interviews all these people. And she affirms everybody on some level, yeah. but, but she never ends up going like, you know, I, I mean, there's always a sort of a, a neat ending where you feel like she's, she's appreciated everybody. And I, I feel like I'm the anti-Krista Tippett where I'm like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't seem to get there. Now, I want to, I want to. That's why I love you, man. That's why I love our conversations, you know. I, I want to, I, I, you know, I, I, we're, I don't want to presume on your time too much, but I want to ask you one more question. Mm-hmm. Sort of and, and spin us a little bit because you're, you're writing books. I know somebody wants to talk to you. Go ahead, you go ahead. That's all right. Sorry, sorry, don't don't worry, man. I don't worry at all. I mean, I've got an editor or friend who will help me with this and all that. But you know, you know who you know who edits these podcasts for me is John Wright. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he's so wonderful. Oh, so this gets edited, so that can be edited out. Okay. Absolutely, yeah, we're good. We're good, don't worry. Um, but um, it's so funny because Corbin was going to Belfast next week, my son Corbin, yeah. and, um, and and I was looking for a place to stay, and all these I, – I, I wrote all my – oh, you well, – I wrote you, and you, you gave me stuff. The, the guy who ended up um, sort of getting with a, a good place first was John Key, and so um, it was just funny, you know, because – the range of people that I know in Belfast is very wide. Oh yeah, I got I got a lot of places uh, 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 for him, but already it was taken up. So. Yeah, it's so funny. Um, so so here's here's the question I have for you. 
is is that you're writing these books. And I mean, the most popular of your books was that one, How Not to Speak of God. Mm-hmm. And that book, like many of these books, were read by these Christians on the edge of, on the edge, where I think that they're questioning even some of the most fundamental supernatural tenets of their faith. Like they're not even sure a God exists. They're sure they want to stay Christian though. Um, because they have reasons to stay in the, in the church. And, and you and I both know lots of people on the, on the outer limits of Christendom who are trying to stay in um, for various reasons. They love the language. They love the community. They, they love the paycheck. Whatever their reason is for wanting to stay in, much as I, as I was. And I feel like you have this unique conversation going with those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you consider yourself one of those people still or not. And I'm not going to be the guy who's going to try to pin you down. Peter, you know, are you an atheist or do you believe in God or what kind of God do you believe in? I'm, you know, but my question is, I meet a lot of those people and I feel like what keeps them in the game sometimes is their love of things Christian. And I feel like what sometimes keeps them in the game is the absence of a meaningful alternative community. That, that, that they don't want to try to pursue the good life. They don't want to try to pursue moral courage. They don't want to try to sur- pursue social justice alone. And they don't see an alternative community. And as you know, that's, that's a big part of what I'm trying to do is to build that kind of community. Yeah. I know you've built communities before. Mm-hmm. And I know that you are kicking around, you kick around the idea of building community. I tried to, you know, for when you first got to, when I first came to California, I was trying to suck you into like, well, why don't you work with me to build this community I'm trying to build? Um, But what is your vision of like, of a community? What, what do you think? First of all, do you think like, yeah, we should just try to help Christians make their churches better. Or do you think that there's some other community that, that, that would be a healthier place for people and what would it look like? Yeah. Okay. Very quickly, because um, I love what you were saying there. Uh, in terms of yes, pe- Christians who are unpicking parts of their problematic elements of their faith, but staying within Christianity, I think that's analogous to how someone comes into therapy. Often, there's some small part of their life that isn't working. They say outbursts of anger at their partner, and they're there because they go, like, "I want to be less angry. I want to be less stressed." But there's a point in the therapy when they realize, oh, that's connected to a whole constellation of things. Um, now, if the therapist at the start says, you know what, you can't just do that. That's going to cause you to have to rethink everything. People will just leave. You know, I didn't want to do that. And actually, at the point when people realize that that's the case, often that's when they leave therapy. They're like, I, I don't want to look at my childhood. I don't want to look at my relationship with my parents. Um, and the therapist has to try to work to keep them in. So in the same way, whenever someone's unpicking one element of their faith, I do think sometimes that means the whole thing will unravel. But my job is not to say that. My job is to let them, let the symptoms speak. What is it that's the problem? And then again, sometimes it all, over, over the space of years sometimes, unravels and they want something new. Um, but then yeah, in terms of what I think about community, my main thing is, that I'm interested in not a new type of community, like uh, the secular or religious or anything like that, but how do actually existing communities become healthier? And, and my argument is that all communities, whether liberal, atheist, theist, whatever, have defense mechanisms, just like human beings do. 
So, like, splitting is a defense mechanism. If you break up with someone, you may, because of the psychological suffering it causes you, split. You make them into a really bad person in your mind, and you're an innocent victim. Like, you see this in kids, where they make, there's a monster under the bed. As they grow up, they realize the monster isn't under the bed, but the monster is in us. But splitting is a way of dealing with, you know, emotions that we find difficult. And as your friend, if I'm listening to you split, uh, I don't tell you that you're right. Oh my goodness, you're right, that person was terrible. But neither do I say you're wrong. I listen to you. And at a key moment, maybe two weeks in, you're, you're doing it again. You're saying how bad they are. And at a moment, I see, I see a little opening and I say, you know, I just think you're hurt. I think you're really hurt by what happened. And if I say that at the right moment, you'll probably go, yeah, you're right. And actually, you know what? It's not all her fault. It's, it's part of my fault too. So in communities, you see splitting. Splitting between, you know, those people, those Muslims are terrible, right? And we're good or whatever it is. Um, or, and there's like, like 15 or 16 different defense mechanisms. For me, I want communities to be better at identifying their defense mechanisms and better at asking, what is that hiding? And how can I look at that? And when you do, the defense mechanism begins to diminish and, and dissipate. And that, that's a that for me is helped community. Now, I will say this as well. There's a place for starting new communities like you're doing, and I support it, and what I'm doing. I want to start new communities, but I don't think they're necessarily going to be any better. They also have to be careful to look at their defense mechanisms. Well, it's interesting, that the idea of defense mechanisms, because I think that, you know, I, I remember reading Eric Hoffer's book, The True Believer, which was all about kind of what is the nature of people that join mass movements, and, um, it was, you know, it's kind of written in the fifties post Hitler. Why would people join Nazi Germany or why do people become fundamentalist Muslims or why do they become fundamentalist Christians or whatever? And, um, or militant atheists or anti-theists. It's all the same to him. Um, and, and a lot of it had to do with trying to escape from my own identity into a group identity. Mm-hmm. And, and the way that the group would I, would define itself was in terms of what it was not, what it was against. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I forget I forget who it was that said, you know, you don't need a God, you don't need God to have a religion, but you definitely need a devil. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and and I think that it sounds to me like what you're saying is is that the kind of community that I'm that you're most excited about is one that every time you pick out a devil, even if the devil is social injustice or the devil is sexism or the devil is the abuse of gay people that even as you're doing that you go like okay that may be true but let's let me let let us look inside and ask ourselves why is that so bothersome to us why are we so angry about that why do we why and and sort of not just look at the social injustice but also look at the hurt that makes me aware of the social injustice not just look at the other that offends me or that threatens me yeah but look at why am i threatened by that this is yeah absolutely. I mean, this is called the scapegoat mechanism and this is one of my interests in christianity but we won't get into it now but is it is the idea that the, the scapegoat the one that you think is the devil is actually the divine right so the, the one where you think is the enemy is actually the instrument of your salvation but the, but with the, with scapegoating yeah in order to avoid an internal trauma we, we can blame somebody. But, I mean, it's funny. So in, in fundamentalism, it's easy because you go, okay, belief 
is a form of defence mechanism, certainty, you know, and, and that underlies, of course, the uncertainty. And you know, anybody kind of anybody who looks at like people who read multiple books on apologetics and can't stand difference knows that those people are often full of doubt. You know, that if you're confident in what you believe, you don't get really angry when people disagree with you. You know, it's, it's great. And you don't have to read millions of books to defend your position. But, so that, that's easy to see. But within liberal churches, for example, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't believe in God. Oh, that's fine. I think Jesus was just a guy. That's okay. I think the devil's good. Oh, that's brilliant. I want to move the altar five feet to the right over my dead body. Right? The liturgical structure is the defense mechanism. And it's easy for liberals to look at conservatives and go, oh my goodness, their beliefs are their defense mechanism. It's much harder for people to see their own defense mechanisms. So for me, it's like, how do we become more sensitive to the defenses in our communities so that we become, as I say, you know, hopefully more empathic and politically engaged subjects? That's interesting. So yeah, you don't have an ideal community. You have sort of a, a technology or a, an approach that you want to bring to any community and yes. say... Always, when like, use your outward, your outward impulses to to also cause you to do some kind of inward reflection. Yes, and I love what you said. Like, I mean, this is not about saying that the person might not be an asshole or whatever, you know, because people are. But it's about not demonizing. It's like it's not saying that there's no wrong or right, but it's like if you vehemently are against something, you know, asking yourself. Is that, is that something I'm doing in order to... Because to be honest, if, say I'm a theist and you're an atheist or vice versa, and we're talking, and you get really angry with me, like really angry with what I believe, I would start to wonder whether you're not fighting me, but you're fighting a part of yourself that might still be, you know, a part of yourself that you can't I mean, we never, we never defend an idea so vehemently as right before we abandon it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, because... Because it's we're coming up face to face, like oh, this is going to change everything for me. I, you know, can I hold on? And and so a lot of times in my own in my life as a Christian minister, when I was pumping out whether it was universalism or um, an openness to gay marriage or whatever it was, when people would come up and just be like, you know, you're going to hell if you believe that. I would always think, oh, you're right on the edge, aren't you, my friend? You're, 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 you're so I'm so scary because. You see the logic of my position, and and now that I find fighting something within themselves, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and as a as a as a person who who now like I'm unable to believe in supernaturalism, and and the you know it's and, and you know what we believe isn't as much a choice as people would like to think it is. I mean, I still think you are able to. I mean, this is my thing. It's like here's a scenario like your science. You know, there's studies that go like if, if someone you know dies and you've got like say wind chimes outside of your room and there's not really much wind, but the day after the funeral the wind chimes ring, you cannot help. Not everybody, but most of us cannot help but think maybe oh. That, that dead person is communicating with me or whatever. My point is that atheism and theism is not a divide. But that's not a rational thing. That's not a rational thing. That's an evolved that's an evolved capacity to find yeah. meaning where it is and but find meaning where it is. Well, we've got a different view of belief. For me, belief is your operating system. I know what you believe, not through what you say, but through how you act. So, well, so I don't, like I don't a, believe that, that. sounds like a young life sermon there, man. Yeah. Well, there was a psychoanalytic insight. Lacan's the idea is that, that we aren't even aware of our own beliefs often. So I might say, I love my mum. And you go, when was the last time you phoned her? Oh, well, you know, six months ago. And you know what? Every time her name comes up, you seem to get a little bit stiff. Right. You go, no, I love my mum. 
but you know, but I would say, you know, in psychoanalytic terms, it's like you're actually not aware of your own belief that that there's some there's some antagonism that you haven't really dealt yeah, with. Yeah, and there are you know, cognitive biases and all sorts of things going on. I mean, that's the thing. Like our brains are not designed for rational thought. Yeah, you know, that's not what they're for. But, but the, the, my point is saying that, that the, the discourse of theism and atheism is problematic for me because in one sense there's theists and atheists inside us all you know like there's, there's the believer who, who secretly thinks it's all rubbish which we all know a lot of them because we've been in that world but there's the atheists who you know praise whenever someone dies and they don't it's not that they but it's not wrong that's not bad or wrong no no it's like, it's like we have to make peace with the fact that that there's even if we define ourselves as an atheist, there are elements in us that that strangely seems to believe, and even if we believe, there are elements in us that don't believe. I think it's all rubbish, and and somehow make peace with all of those parts of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's funny for me because one of the things that I've I believe rationally, yeah, from data, you know, from from evidence, is that. Praying, even if you're praying to no one, mm. that the idea of articulating your deepest desires on the one hand and articulating your thankfulness for the, for the good things that you've experienced on the other creates a sense of well-being, comforts people in times of distress, Yes. Um, actually causes people to be to remain more focused on their highest values and therefore to actualize that values to a greater degree. So in a sense, even to have those prayers, are, the, those desires are more likely to be actualized. And so I'm a great proponent. I'm, I'm a friend of uh, one of my friends is a woman named Greta Vosper who has made the transition. She's still running a church in Canada, but it's a, it's a church. Not, nobody believes in God in her church, but they still articulate prayers, not well, to God. Prayer is an atheist thing. Prayer is not theistic I mean, this is what always confuses me is if you believe fully in, in God as a supreme being who's in control of everything prayer makes no sense right you can only pray it's out of obedience it would, it would only be out of obedience yeah it, it's, it's so what I'm saying is like prayer first of all prayer is a human phenomenon exactly what you're saying it's, it's what you do when you write a love letter that you don't send it's, 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 it's bringing up the inner moons and groans of your being to the surface in a way it's transformed. It's exactly what I'm talking about. But prayer is not a theistic event. I mean, that's why like, everyone prays. And, and if you, I say if you were, I don't think they, they, very few of them exist. You have to be psychotic. You do, but full belief, full unadulterated belief. Um, prayer is... Everybody is, does it. Everybody does it. But not everybody does it overtly and communally. And so one of the things I want in my atheist community, in my secular community is... I want to bring that out of the closet and say, we're going to be a healthier group and yeah. we're going to be co- more connected to each other if we articulate our yes. prayers. Yeah, absolutely, but what I'm saying is that don't, don't, like, often atheists have to feel like they have to defend why they pray. And we're like, you know, like, I'm like, no, it's like, the, 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 it's, it makes complete, you know, and I, so I'm saying you're absolutely right and I'm saying if you can do that and show that, that that's not something you have to be embarrassed about, oh, I pray but I'm atheist. Yes, no, of course, because prayer is bringing up the inner grooms of your being. And if you were a total theist, then you wouldn't pray. Prayer is for the agnostics, the parts of ourselves that, that go, maybe there is something, and of course there isn't. Oh, but I still want to speak about But of course, that's ridiculous. Yes. And, and we pray. See, and it's funny, it's like, as, a, as a naturalist, as I don't think there's anything. Yeah. And, and you say, well, then you would think that the, all the value of the prayer, like... 
logically speaking, not what your emotional impulse is, but why you think it's still worth doing and why, why when you reflect on it, you're still for it, is you think that something happens in the natural world, in the world of your brain, and, and that, that makes prayer valuable. And I go like, yeah, I do. This is this is a difference between you and me, but I think I think one of the differences, but is that I was going to say you're just finding one. Yeah, just one, just one. Apart from a better looking, um, is that you know you so you say things like you know I like I'm a naturalist, I don't believe in the supernatural, I don't believe in God. Like that. that's kind of philosophical positioning. So that's great. I mean, I used to be a philosopher. I think that's fascinating. But for me, I guess I'm going like. Well, one is I have, I have just no interest in convincing anybody of what I personally believe, right? Oh, like yourself, probably, but I don't even talk about it because, like, that's interesting to read books. And, but, like, I don't, because if, if, if I try to convince someone of my belief, say, naturalism, again, if they like me, they're going to be more likely to agree with me. And if they don't like me, they'll rebel against it. It doesn't matter. It's like kids. Like, it doesn't matter what you believe as a parent. There's a point when they have to differentiate. Yeah, that's why I get them to like me. Because yeah, I want to be, I get like, them to like me because I'm more likely to be able to change their minds if they like me. And, and, and you say, well, why do you want to change their minds? And I go like, this, sometimes I see somebody who believes that methamphetamines is the best way for them to live. And I want to change their mind because no. I care about them. Yeah, this, is what I, this is where you need to actually reach therapy. Most people, like, I mean, there are, as I say, there are exceptions, so, but we're talking about the majority of people. Um, that the, what, they, what they say they believe and what I say I believe um, is a defense against looking at what I read. So I say I like animals, but of course I do, and I eat them. And I know that they're tortured in, in abattoirs and stuff, you know, but I don't want to know that. So I, hypocrite. Like yeah. the rest of us. No, well, no, it's, but it's, no, it's different from that because, well, it's, it's a good form of hypocrisy, but what I'm trying to do is isolate the activity here. And the activity is I have a narrative that I tell myself about myself, beliefs that I have. I believe that I care about kids. I believe about Somalia. I care about Somalia. I care about these things. Right? That's a narrative that doesn't necessarily actually encounter the truth of my positioning. So my says is very hard. It's, this is called empty speech and fool speech. Empty speech is where your beliefs don't reflect your being. And fool speech is when your beliefs reflect, it only happens briefly, when your actual beliefs reflect how you act. Like what, the about, what about propaganda? What about propaganda and aspirational speech? Where the first stage in changing my behavior about animals is to articulate what I think my behavior ought to be. And so I say, like, I care about... I, I so the first step in psychoanalysis is to articulate what your real beliefs are. So what you have to first of all do is say, my name is Peter and I'm an alcoholic. In Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step is getting your false belief. I'm not an alcoholic. I could give up any time I want. I make it fit with the reality. Okay, Mark Campolo, I don't care in, about animals enough. But I want, but I want to work myself towards the, being a person who cares about animals enough. So you have to say the second part because you can't stand to look at the truth. You don't want to. I it's really that. easy part. You're in an, you're living in LA. It's super easy to be a vegetarian. Don't lie to me that you want to change. Why are you lying to me? Because that makes you sleep at night. Be honest. Be honest. And, and, and sit with your honesty for, <laughs> for months at a time. <laughs> 
Oh, I'm so sad. I thought I wanted to change, but I don't. Yes, no, I eat meat, so I don't give a fuck, right? So, but you know, but so if I'm saying like, the, the the point is that this aspirational speech requires the first step, which is let's just be honest about ourselves. I'll be honest. Right? I'll be honest, even about my hypocrisy. But I'm also going to be honest that the. But you were, you said to me, you said to me that you want you want to what not be less cruel to animals. I do. So what have you done in the last year? Yes. What have you done in the last year? I reduced the amount of beef that I eat. Okay. You've, okay. Well, that's good. Because beef's good. the worst. Beef's the worst for the environment. And then, and I've also figured out my second my second target, which is uh, pork, because pigs are really smart, and the, their amount of emotional pain in this process of being killed for for food is is higher. I mean, yeah. like I'm a bullshit. I'm a I'm a complete hypocrite. But what I'm saying is, is that, you know, E. Digby Balsell once said that the question of a man's life is not whether or not he'll be a hypocrite, but what are the limits of his hypocrisy? And I'm trying to, I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to reduce the limit. I'm trying to lower the, the limits of my hypocrisy or, yeah. rate, you know, that, that, and, and, and I'm very open about the fact that I, I'm not. I'm not there yet, but I, what I'm what I'm what I'm pushing back against is the idea that to art, you know that you go like to articulate a des, an aspirational desire. You say, well, if you want it and you're not doing it, then you don't really want it. And I go like, no, I do lots of things that I don't want to do. And by the way, I want to get back to the reason why we're having this discussion, which was because I need to make an important distinction between physics and metaphysics, right? In the world of physics, it's not the pursuit of truth, but it's the pursuit of like coherence and, and, and precision. And that allows science to move forward. So, of course, you don't go, I believe that planes fly because of fairy dust, right? That's a, that's a physical thing. It doesn't work, right? I'm talking about in the realm of metaphysics, where I'm going like... Hey, like, wait, can you, wait, before you go any further... Yeah. Will you define, give me your definition of metaphysics? Okay, yeah. So very broadly, it's a very complex thing, of course, but very broadly, metaphysics um, defines that which is the basis of the physical world, where we start to talk about what lies within or behind the physical world. So what can't be empirically proven or disproven, but, the, but, the, <clears throat> but and, you know, not metaphysics as in what you see in the would lo- so would, like Would my love for you? Yeah. Would that be a metaphysical reality because it can't be quantified, but it's not a physical reality. But even though even though it may reside somewhere in my brain and it may and, and, and it has physical impacts and things like that. But would you go like, yeah, love is a metaphysical concept. No, that's that's more kind of to say what you see in the bookshops. When you're, there's a, it's a weird thing in America. You've got this like area in bookshops called metaphysics, and then it's all of this kind of stuff. But, you know, it's like. You, if you talk about love as in a uh, a thing, then you're probably getting to more metaphysical things. But you can talk about love non-metaphysically without reducing it to mere biological things. Okay. Well, I, I didn't, I didn't like, mean, I, to, to be simple, we're just talking. To, I'm going to have to do a whole. I'm going to have to do a whole work on that because we had a guy named Richard Carrier on campus a couple of days ago to give a lecture, and he was talking about metaphysical naturalism, and he's you know, hardcore atheist. And so he was like, I'm not talking about metaphysics in any kind of supernatural sense, but he's like, I'm a naturalist, but metaphysics, you know, metaphysics, and he had a definition and I'm, I'm I'm blanking on it. And it is is complicated. I don't get it. Yeah. No, it is complicated because there is a 
there is I am a metaphysician of sorts, right? So it's there, there is a there is a type of metaphysics that is, um, but it's still metaphysics. It's still, but it tries to enfold itself in physics. So in other words, it's not making claims. Okay, to okay. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. No worries. But but primarily, what I'm saying is that metaphysical claims about you know the existence of divine beings or whatever. I'm saying that that what I'm more interested in is I don't mind if you believe in God or if you don't. Uh, I'm interested in in whether your life um, is whether you're defensive and whether you're bitter and whether you're destructive to yourself and the people around you or whether you're not. And and although we can in the, in the pub talk about whether God exists or not, and I'm passionate about those subjects, it's great fun. That's not what my work's interested in. My work is interested in whether you're conservative or liberal or secular. You know, are you? engaged in very strong defenses that are destructive um, or not. And it's it's interesting because I'm going to say that my my suspicion is is that if you are defensive, would that be like, if, if somebody defensive puts their hand to the tool of theism, if they pick up that tool and use that in order to defend themselves, that it'll have one set of consequences. And if they put their hand to the tool of secularism or, or atheism, it, it might have a different implication. Yeah. Um, and so I'm interested both in the defensiveness and there are some tools that I think yeah. are more or less helpful or more or less destructive in different situations. And so I actually, I, I, I think that there are real world implications to what people believe Mm-hmm. as well as to what they're feeling and being defensive about. Yeah. And well, if, that's, if that's the case, then, <clears throat> then I mean, there's lots of cultures in our world. I mean, somebody recently, for example, uh, that there's a certain kind of like uh, enlightenment, post-enlightenment type of reason. That uh, I, I agree with you that beliefs have a, have a place, but if, if beliefs are, have some sort of central place, well, one is we're... You know, we're we're really early in our development. You know, what we think as a species in five hundred years time. You know, it's and oh, by the way, as well, if you want people to think well, just teach them philosophy. Don't teach them secularism, atheism, theism, because the the level of debate in America is terrible. If you want people to think, don't teach them secularism. Teach them philosophy. No, I mean, I would say teach them. Yeah, teach them how to think. Teach them how to think. What I would say is, if you taught people that your that your your convictions should be grounded in evidence and experience. Yeah. I, I agree. I think that's great. You'll <laughs> take care of every, like you'll take care of a lot of, a lot of bad belief systems. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you in the level of physics, but in the level of metaphysics, like, you know, you, the beliefs aren't grounded. What there, you can't find, you can't find a philosophical reason to believe in God or to not believe in God. I mean, it's just philosophy doesn't do that. You know, I mean, you might find it reasonable or coherent to believe a certain thing, but um, it, philosophy, you know, doesn't give you some sort of knockdown argument there. Mostly, people believe because they're brought up that way. Yeah, Mostly- yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that I what I want to do is I want to ground people in values. Yeah, and, I, and, and ultimately, I mean, you hear me say it over and over again, like the ultimate value of my community, and like not everybody's going to want to play my kind of music. Yeah. But ultimately, I've come to the conclusion that the that if this life is all there is, yeah. that the only thing that matters, the only thing worth doing is to be happy. Yeah. 
and I don't mean happy in a light way, but right. and that the way to accomplish that is the best way to accomplish that for most people is to feel connected to other people and to do work that is meaningful to yourself and to other people. And so in a real sense, I, I, I still preach, even out of Christianity, I still preach a gospel of loving relationships. Yeah. And so the people that are drawn to my world and my community are people that go like, oh, this guy is saying that our ultimate value should be, we're a pack animal and our ultimate value should be loving relationships, that morality is derived from our relationships, that right and wrong come out of our relationships, and that ultimately relationships are the ultimate value. Yeah. And I go like, you say, can you prove that? Yes. Like, what, what there's a leap of faith these... involved there. There's yes. a leap of faith involved there. What, what if those beliefs primarily, and it's called rationalization, what if those beliefs come primarily from experiencing and living in an environment of grace and empathy that then leads you to go to, to construct those beliefs? And in other words, to create a community of grace and empathy leads to those types of beliefs, rather than getting those beliefs leads to communities of grace and empathy. Yeah, chicken and egg. Um, well, I don't think it's a chicken and egg. Well, here's like, what I'm going to say. Is, if, if, you, if you have kids and you raise them, you beat them, but you, you, but you teach them the beliefs that people should be gracious and kind, I'd say that, that, that and you compare that with a community where you don't teach them a moral frame, but you show grace and mercy and you're very kind. What I mean by chicken and egg is, is that the belief that it is right to love people and be kind to them and forgive them and all those things, those those are moral state moral arguments or, or moral moral values. No, what I'm saying, it's not philosophy. It's not philosophy. What I'm saying is, you, no, wait, Pete, let me finish. Very quickly. No, 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 no. You gotta let me finish. Okay, what I'm saying is, animals, social animals, bonobos, pigs, dogs, they develop moral codes. They develop values. They develop moral instincts. These just grow out of relationships. Listen, yeah, but hear me and hear me well. But, yeah, right, like, as human, thanks as for human saying beings, that. It means nothing. As human beings, right, if, and this will sound crazy to you at first, right, but if you grew up in an environment where the way that you got uh, uh, attention from your family was through rebellion, right, so by, by, by acting out, then if you have certain beliefs as an adult, you will find that you actually do the opposite of what you believe is good. Often because what you're doing is at a, at a deep unconscious level, you, you the way you get desire is to act against your beliefs. So what I'm saying is you can, you can be a person who believes it's really good to be kind, but you find yourself always doing the opposite of that. Because even though you've got the belief, the structure of how you interact with your belief at an unconscious level um, is, is problematic. I have a much longer view. I have a much longer view. What I believe is, is that certain behaviors and characteristics naturally select over time. So, you know, if you say like, what's like, like that lizards to mammals has to do with the, the ability to develop a, free, a, a, a part of your brain that nurtures and that cares and that is social. And then you say like mammals to, to, to human beings, prefrontal cortex, you develop the ability to, to empathize and to see into the future and, and to visualize. Well, that's like, but I'm talking about now. Like, no, 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 but let, years let, in advance. I'm talking about... No, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, is that that family where people, where people abuse their children and things like that, what I'm saying is, is that over time, 
Okay, maybe. I don't, I don't mind. Stop, what I'm saying, but you're not hearing what I'm saying. What I'm saying is as human beings, it's not just what we believe. It's how we interact with what we believe. Right, and, right. And, and so you've got to understand, you've got to work with how people interact with their beliefs. That's, that's the key. So it's, it's not you've got to work with that to get where? To get where? To, 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 I mean, I, I, like I told you, I'm a universalist. You're not. I, I believe in kind of like trying to, you know, tarry with your, your lack to become a, a, a more empathetic, uh, healthy individual. I'm all for that. What I'm saying is I don't believe it's by getting you to believe in God or not believe in God. Mm-hmm. I have friends in America who believe in God, loads of them. And it's weird to me. But they but they just naturally look at the universe and think there's, you know, there's a divine I'm cool with that because these, these are PhD level people. These are people that are smarter than you and I can by I find it a bit weird but but they don't but if but they they're also not defensive they just naturally believe sure. I would I've only got a problem with those people who believe defensively I, and, and what, what, what's more is like you say they naturally believe and I think like we are wired to find supernatural meanings in things we are wired I naturally didn't I grew up in Europe in Europe it's very different we, honestly it's like Canada you grew up and, and it's actually whenever I became a Christian uh, like a, a conservative Christian at 17 I find it quite hard to believe I did believe but it was more natural for me not it was actually it was actually a, a different but I think you're right we're, we're hardwired to write at a deep level to believe in supernatural but I, I'm talking I'm talking at your level, at conscious level. Yeah, and, I, and when I'm, all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, is that over time, what I think is, is that loving relationships create stronger individuals and stronger tribal units. Yeah. Tribal, stronger, stronger groups that when difficult circumstances like global warming or economic breakdown hit, those groups are going to sur- thrive more readily. Yeah. Because they're more resilient. Yeah, don't go with all the evolutionary stuff. So I, 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 yeah. just, I believe in love on, yeah. on, on, yeah. on a deep Absolutely. level. But what I'm simply saying is in the, in the therapeutic setting, the therapist doesn't try to get you to believe in God or not believe in God. If you're an atheist in the therapeutic setting, it comes up, if it comes up, if it comes up, if if you're an atheist and it keeps coming up, the therapist will go, you know, tell me about your atheism. Why are you talking about it? If you're a theist and it keeps coming up, they'll go, why are you talking about that all the time? Talk to me about it. But they won't try to convince you one way or the other because the therapist knows it. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist or a theist. And like it, it, it matters how you interact with your atheism. Exactly. And, and, and so, honestly, as a secular humanist chaplain, when I encounter somebody whose theistic worldview is causing them to have really loving relationships and to be enfolded in loving relationships, I leave that alone. Yeah. I don't want to undermine that in, in the least. I believe in my ultimate value is loving relationships. Yeah. Now, and, 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 and you say, well, well, why are you doing that in a secular front? I don't believe in God. There are a lot of people that don't believe in God. I want to draw them into community that's going to allow them to ex- fully express their highest value of loving relationships. And yeah. if you don't value loving relationships, you won't be attracted to my community. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I love what you're doing. I think you're right. And, but my, my issue is, of course, that I don't think people who are, I think theists are a little bit more atheistic than they think. And a lot of atheists are a little bit more theistic than they think. And it's a little bit, you know, we're all a little bit more blurred. Uh, but not intellectually speaking. You just not, not intellectually, you philosophically your speaking. own blurriness on everybody. But, no, but no, philosophically speaking, like the ego, I mean, here's the, 
here's the big problem with the differences. For me, the subject, the ego is only the, the tip of the iceberg of the subject. Um, in Lacanian terms, it's, there's the imaginary, which is mostly the ego, there's the symbolic, and there's the real. And so for me, what do you think intellectually can be clear as crystal clear? I, I did, I've got a PhD in philosophy. I'm very clear in terms of what I think. But, but I don't actually think that it's symbolic on conscious level. It's so much more complicated. I find myself thinking that miracles have occurred sometimes, like whenever something really crazy happens, not intellectually, but like at a, yeah, at yeah. a steep level. Right. So what I'm saying is that we should come to terms with the fact that, that our conscious beliefs are not... Are, are not a reflection of our entire subjectivity and be comfortable with that and 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 you know and yeah so I, that's why I agree that it's great to talk about like I, it, some people have crazy views and I want to talk about that but ultimately both of us I think are interested in what does it mean to be healthy regardless of what you believe that is a beautiful I mean that is a beautiful no I mean I'm, I'm not kidding that's a beautiful stopping point for me because okay. that's, that's exactly true and, and it's funny because I, I, as you said it I thought to myself I want us to close in prayer, and and, and I mean that in, I mean that in, in my secular way, in the uh, sense yeah. of saying I want to articulate first of all my genuine thanksgiving for for my friendship with you. Like you are a beautiful part of my life, and just being able to talk this way, whether I, anyone else listens to it, I just yeah. I, I mean, I'm always going. Like, I don't even know if this should be put out or not, but it's brilliant. I love you, man. I love this. You're my favorite interlocutor, and, and I. It's like and this is actually. I think we're embodying what good a good conversation should look like. I, I hope so. And so, like, a, I'm thankful, and b, like, if I say aspirationally, you know, like, I want to articulate my goals. All the money stuff that we were talking about before we went, before we started podcasting was like. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off and attract enough people and enough support to actually remain like a, a, a kind of a professional community builder. If so, I'll reclaim my amateur status and do it in my spare time, you know, in between, you know, digging ditches. But the fact of the matter is like my hope is that we'll be able to build, create environments in which people – can experience this kind of external, let me build relationships, and internal, let me look hard at why I'm so defensive. Let me look hard at what's at the ghosts that are haunting me because, because there's a, a relationship between those two things. I won't be able to be as good a lover if I'm not, if I'm not facing down my, th- th- these ghosts that can become poltergeists if I don't look at them. And I won't be able to look at these ghosts. I won't have the courage or the, or the strength to do it if I'm not connected to other people that are encouraging and supporting me in that process. Nobody does their own internal work without some support from the outside. Uh, to somebody to cook them a dinner when they're too exhausted from their therapeutic experience. And nobody is a good nobody is good with other for other people if they don't do that internal work. So I'm just you know, my, my hope is that at some point we'll be able to look back 20 years from now at, and say, see, even if it's just like one little group in one little place and go like, there's a group of people that are a little bit healthier mm, yeah. because, because, they, because they read some books that encouraged them to look at their demons and their ghosts that were written by Peter and because they got some inspirational sermon from Bart that convinced them that they needed to care more than they did about other people. 
And you were doing it as well, where you lived last. I saw you, your community dinners, where you were bringing together the community to encounter each other, to eat together, to drink together, to talk about their problems and issues together. That's doing it. That's creating healthy community. That's the technology of this theory, man. So I want to be, I want to on your podcast say like, I love you. I love what these conversations and I love what you're doing and I want to support it. All right, man. This is good. The lights might do a little dance tonight. One time for the night time. One time for my time.